Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got a great show lined up for you. It really comes to the heart of Indian country. It's focused on our youth, making a difference in those who are really the future of any society. And we know how throughout Indian country, how the youth are held in esteem and their education is something that has been a concern for decades of priority, for centuries in Indian country. Now, special, well, special challenges. It's no longer just the tribe that's raising a child, but there are all kinds of factors. And in this modern world, some of those factors seem, well, less than ideal as far as helping our children thrive in a very challenging environment. To help us make sense of where we're at and to make a difference in this whole field is Bill Latham. Bill, it is great to have you with us on today's show. Thank you, Dave. I'm very happy to be here. Bill, you and others have been raising concerns about education in America. I've heard concerns in Indian country for years about the so-called one-size-fits-all education process and how it often just doesn't fit for Native youth, but that's true of, of many young people across the demographic spectrum. You've been looking at education from a very unique perspective, and I think to appreciate that, we've got to hear some of your story. Tell us a little bit about your background first, Bill. Well, I entered the education field uh, very early in life. My mom was an educator. My wife uh, was an educator. I've uh, been around an education family. And so much like the story of a lot of people, education's always had a curiosity on the sideline. But vocationally, in 2001, I got involved in helping outfit learning environments. Um, and uh, in doing so, I uh, began to with my background in chemistry and some of the curiosity I have about research, I started wondering, was there some tie between the kinds of experiences people have in learning and the kinds of environments that they were learning in? And as you might expect, we found that there was a tie between the way that students were experiencing their learning and the kinds of environments they were doing it. Now, I find this fascinating because you're not the run-of-the-mill educator. I mean, yes, you had this background. You have education maybe in your blood, we could say it that way. But you were a, a chemist. You held a number of patents. So a lot of people looking at your resume around 2000, they would have said, I mean, this guy is going to continue in the field of chemistry. But you really changed directions. And I think you got all of us curious about what prompted that. Well, I think my story is not appreciably different from a lot of people's stories in that learning becomes a lifelong process for us all. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so as I went through uh, the, the career uh, choices I was making, I found myself in middle management in a large organization, uh, not making what I consider to be much of a difference in people's lives. And, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people get there. And when you understand hey, significance is a really important aspect of the human experience, it can be very um, it can be very challenging for you to say, well, gosh, I, I really don't feel like I'm doing much in, in the, in the, uh, with the talents and gifts that I have. 
And, and so I uh, kind of did a, a 180 and got involved in a very small business at the time that was just handling learning environments in one state uh, in, in the U.S., and that was in Florida. Um, and, and that set us on a different career path, that, that on a, a very different trajectory that I couldn't have called 16 years ago. Uh, but today has kind of led to this uh, passion that I have for transforming uh, the educational system in America, because I, I really clearly believe the stakes are very high for us all. Well, I don't think you're going to get any question from the majority of my listeners. I mean, great concerns about education, what's happening to our kids, a lot of dialogue. But as I'm trying to get a real feel for where we're going on the show, and I think some of my listeners as well are in that uh, in that boat, we're saying, okay, here's someone who pulls up stakes from his initial career choice. He's in middle management, and now he's going to work with learning environments. Now, that conjures up all kinds of things in my mind. I'm not primarily an educator, even though I've taught in the classroom. What does that mean, handling learning environments? What does a company do that's involved with that? Well, you can imagine that when you walk into a classroom, there are things there for you to uh, to use. There are desks and chairs and boards and computer tables and uh, tables that you, you do art projects on and music choral risers and all this kind of stuff, products that go into these learning environments. Um, and for years, those have kind of been very regimented. Uh, you could, uh, Rip Van Winkle would wake up and walk into a classroom that he was in 100 years ago, and he would recognize the classroom that he was walking in, and there wouldn't be a, a lot of changes, nice little rows and and columns of desks and a place for the teacher to stand at the front and talk and write on the board. And, and this is what a learning environment looks like that comes out of an industrial model. Uh, content is dispersed from the front of the room uh, by an expert to a group of listeners, active or not. And that's the way education has proceeded. From, and that's most of our experience. If you're you know, much over the age of 25 or 30 years old, that's your experience largely in any kind of educational context. No, I mean, it's a great point, and one of the criticisms I've heard in Indian country about education is this uh, particular model seems especially maladapted to Native youth, and whether that has to do with their traditional upbringing, with their closer ties to nature historically, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, uh theories, perhaps, as to why that is, but this is not just a, a native youth phenomenon. As you've been looking at learning environments, you're seeing that they're a problem for many students, correct? I would say for all students, when you think about this uh, this type of environment we were describing, and there's a common thread that you find with all types of students, and that is they are very much human beings, first and foremost. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and no so question. when we kind of think about the construct of a traditional learning environment or the construct of rows and columns and somebody uh, talking to you for an hour and, and there not being a lot of breaks or there not being a lot of opportunity for you to experience uh, or join in the dialogue. This is not a very human concept for anybody. This is not comfortable for us when we're adults. This is not comfortable for us when we're teenagers. This isn't comfortable for us when we're children. And so we find there's this dehumanized machine that was created, and it was created for noble purposes. We needed to uh, bring literacy and numeracy and fluency to a group of people that needed to interact a particular way in industrialized society. They had to read in English. They had to be able to do computation. They had to be able to interact in a, a command structure. 
uh, and this is an industrial model, and our education system actually served very well to the end it was created for many years. So you've pictured for us what many of us have seen, what many of us have grown up with, the contemporary or traditional, perhaps is a better word for it, at least in in recent American history, traditional model of how education is done. And you've made a point that it really, at least from your vantage point and from your team's vantage point, maybe from data that you have, does not seem to be an ideal model. So where have you been going with all this? What looks better to you and uh, what should we be putting on the table? Well, the first part of the conversation we started to have is what are the outcomes that an education system should afford? I mean, what's the purpose? What are we trying to get out of it? And when you when you kind of ask the general population about what they think the purpose of education is, you find one of three answers typically. <coughs> Excuse me. One is to prepare students academically. Uh, one is to prepare students to be good citizens. And, and a third is to prepare them for work. And so in a couple of those scenarios, the, the trending of good citizens and, and to prepare them for work, you have to think about what type of skills uh, are we talking about that are necessary to participate and be successful in the workforce of tomorrow. So there's a couple of realities we have to deal with. One, 65% of the jobs um, that are future jobs have yet to be created according to estimates by most futurists. I don't know how they come up with that, but we see it happening every day that new jobs that were not even a twinkle in our eye are being added. Mm-hmm. And then the kinds of skills that are associated with those jobs have changed fairly dramatically as well um, from what used to be in an industrial model, a skill set that required the, the type of things we were talking about, to, to now soft skills that you would uh, characterize as things like complex problem solving or creative Uh, and divergent thinking, um, the ability to actively listen, uh, creativity, emotional intelligence, empathy. These are the skill sets that are present in companies that are successful uh, and on successful tracks today. And that looks very different than it did in a 1940s, 1950s, 1960s company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So basically you're saying that a model that worked in its era is now a model that really doesn't fit the current needs of students and the emerging job market. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, when we talk about forms going obsolete, that an existing model can actually be uh, an effective model for a different era, but that that form can become obsolete. And, And I believe that public education takes it on the chin oftentimes just for doing what it was designed to do. And in the previous era, that served America very well. Mm-hmm. But with the passing of that era, we also have to come to the realization that that model is becoming obsolete, and we need to do something radically different in the types of skills and the types of experiences that we're creating for students in the 14,000 hours they'll spend in a school from kindergarten to 12th grade. So you and your team have been not only doing research, not only have been working in the field, You've written a new book called Humanizing the Education Machine. Uh, Even that term, education machine, seems somewhat distancing. You must have uh, deliberately used that terminology. 
Right, and and I think that I think the machine was the best way that we could come to describe what we were observing that the line share of the experience was for students around the country. Now, when we talk about the machine, we're talking about something that prioritizes achievement over character. Hmm. Uh, we're talking about something that has been put in place for efficiency and scale, uh, rather than for, if you will, human relationships or human contact. And, and the good part about systems that are uh, developed is that they can deliver a good service. And the bad part of a system is they can no longer care. Um, so efficiency tends to remove agency or ownership, and it tends to sometimes even remove common sense. And in just about every system that, that's out there, there's some type of perverse logic that exists. And with education and public education in particular for years, and really until the last maybe 10 or 15 years, it's been a monopoly of sorts. And so competition hasn't even really been able to impact the development of the machine. And so we kind of have this machine that, that is supposed to enact certain things on the raw material, the children coming through, and we're, we're looking for particular outcomes uh, that have been predetermined for these children to be considered successful academically. And what we're finding is it's just chewing so many kids up, and it's actually chewing up a lot of adults who are trying to engage that process as well. Wow. I mean, these are these are sobering thoughts, and, you know, we've talked a lot in theory. We, of course, as we get into the program, we really want to talk about some concrete examples, some stories, both uh, maybe some uh, sad stories as well as some successes as we're talking about new models, new ways of, of going about educating our youth. Before we step away just for a couple of minutes, Bill, you are running a corporation. You're actually the CEO of something called Meteor Education. Tell us just a little bit about what that is. Is this this company that you started 16 years ago? It is, but it's uh, it's maybe a 2.0 version of that company. Uh, we, we came to realize that just trading out learning environments, new ones for old ones, was actually not, in a lot of cases, helping people really transform education. And so our company went through a radical shift in its own mission uh, within the last several years to focus on creating learning experiences for students, not just learning environments for students. And that, that really changed uh, almost everything about our organization necessarily because the mission obviously drives a lot of what goes on. And so, you know, it's a, it's a continuing journey. It's that uh, continu continuing learning experience that, that goes on um, for any company that wants to be relevant and make a difference. Wow. We've got a lot more to talk about. Bill Latham is going to be telling us about things that can make a difference for your kids, the kids in your tribe, kids in your community, your own children, your grandchildren. It is something that's vital to understand and to discuss, and we've got a lot more to come. A lot more practical illustrations in the upcoming segments. I'm Dr. DeRose, Bill Latham, my guest. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call one 800 775 hope that's 1-800-775-4673 we'll be right back after this this is betty white i know you don't need one more thing to worry about but listen high blood pressure can cause kidney damage blindness heart attack stroke and you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right one in seven adults has it but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high 
So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Bill Latham. Bill is the CEO of Meteor Education. He is also one of the authors of an exciting new book called Humanizing the Education Machine. The subtitle is How to Create Schools that Turn Disengaged Kids into Inspired Learners. Bill, you've got our attention, and yet at the same time, we're trying to grapple, at least I am, with how you're pulling this all together and giving us a little bit more perspective into your mindset. I know some of that takes us far away to Southeast Asia. Tell us a little bit about that connection. Well, the method we used in going about uh, the research that we were engaging with this book was something called positive deviance theory. Uh, A researcher named Jerry Sternen in the early 90s was in Vietnam. He had been asked to come in because of uh, extreme malnutrition in the villages. And as he began to observe villages that were right next to one another that had very different rates of malnutrition, he found certain behavior patterns in those villages that were different or deviant from the village right next door. And there were three, actually. They observed that they were feeding children food that was not traditionally considered acceptable for children to eat, like shellfish. Mm. And they were feeding them more frequently throughout the day, not more food because they didn't have more food, but they were feeding them more frequently and they were washing their hands before they ate. And when they applied those three principles to the villages right next door, they saw 85% reductions in malnutrition in those villages. And this sort of science of positive deviance theory was born where, where you go out and observe what is it that is common among programs that are considered exemplar or working, and where are the commonalities that you could pull out? And so a lot of the work that came in out of the, of the book was really what are not necessarily the specific things that you have to do inside the classroom, but what are the general principles that we see in successful programs 
that despite the fact that all their peers around them may not be successfully transforming, they are. And so that led us to a lot of the conclusions that we find in the book. So basically, you catch this concept. You say you can have groups that are side by side, but just a few factors that are different can make a huge difference in outcomes. Do you bring this, uh, you know, some type of set of metrics to start measuring school programs in Florida where you started? Is that how it began? Well, interesting. That is one of the programs we visited. There was a, a program in Sarasota County, Florida, that began with a community foundation that came to the school district and said, we are having to go five and six time zones out to find coders that can work in our biotech businesses. Hmm. And it isn't because there aren't qualified coders from a technical standpoint in our own community, but they don't know how to collaborate and work on teams. And so we have a lot of kids coming out of school that have no interest in being coders or no interest in these technical skills. Um, and even the ones that do don't seem to have effective soft skills to be a part of our organization. So if you can show us a different way to teach STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math in your community, uh, we'll give you a grant of $100,000. Uh, and the district took the challenge, and the educator there said, we will take a year, we will figure out how to do this. And then what ended up transforming in that district was every middle school program, every STEM classroom in that district, uh, over about a five- to six-year period, transformed with a new method of instruction, with new technology integration, new environments, and, and a very holistic approach to teacher wellness, student wellness, and the learning experience of students. And what they found was the foundation ultimately funded $10 million of that $20 million renovation. And that's what we would call social capital. Hmm. That's a community that begins to see effective teaching and learning, and it isn't that they're not willing to fund what they think is effective. The problem we find is most communities do not actually believe their schools are effectively engaging students, and therefore it becomes very difficult to fund initiatives when the community has a very low trust value for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's an excellent observation, and that's true whether it's uh, in the, the heart of a city, in a rural area, and even in Indian country, if it's a, a tribally owned school that uh, the tribe may be very invested in, there may still be questions among some of the stakeholders about how effectively things are happening there, right? Well, you know, Gallup asked a question in 2015 of parents, and they said, what's important for effectiveness in your child's school? 78% of the respondents said it was very important that their child was engaged mm. in their classwork, and 77% said it was very important they were hopeful about their future. Now, in and of themselves, those numbers don't mean much, but if you think about only 69% of the respondents said it was very important their child graduate from high school, only 38% of the respondents said it was important that their child go immediately to college after graduating from high school, only 27% say it was important that they start work immediately after high school, and only 14% said it was important that they score well on a standardized test. And yet the entire system is set up to operate in almost the exact reverse of that. Hmm. We want to get kids to pass standardized tests so they can either go to college or go to work immediately after school, and if it just so happens that they're hopeful about their future or engaged in their classwork while they're there, I guess that's a bonus. But that's not really how parents see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So You've been looking at these uh, disconnects. You've been looking at things that work. You gave us the example from Vietnam, the example from Sarasota. How does all this come full circle and then start to make a difference in organizations that you're working with? Well, the first thing is sort of shifting the focus away from uh, testing as an end 
or testing as the result. And results of the testing are overly important. And moving it back to uh, the idea of a student that's thriving. Mm-hmm. And when we ask a lot of our uh, peers and contemporaries in education, what does it mean for a student to thrive, we get a lot of blank books back. Um, but when we really start to probe the question of what they believe the outcome should be for students in terms of there being a passion there for learning or that those children desire to serve and make a difference, or that they're able to see connections in their life, or that they're able to bloom where they're planted, or that they're able to think divergently and creatively about problems or to act morally and ethically across different aspects of their life. Um, these are not things that are typically what we would call the curriculum of schools today. Mm-hmm. And yet it is exactly what we're really hoping these children catch as they come through the system. And so these things have to be designed into the learning experience. They can't just be expected to happen. And it takes quite a bit of shifting of just some of our basic presuppositions about how we educate children as, as a starting point. And then the community really has to engage the process, uh, like we heard in the Sarasota example. So we're talking about changing how we do things. We're talking about having different goals and as a result having different methods for achieving those goals. Your group, Meteor Education, and others have been working with that in mind. And you've got this book out, which is really presenting this type of approach. It's called Humanizing the Education Machine. We want to talk a little bit about that book in relation to the topic at hand. But before we do, I know you've got more resources than just the book, and you've got your own website. Tell us a little bit about how we can get more information. Well, the website for the humanizing book is hope.school, and, of course, our website is meteoreducation.com. And so those are uh, places that we can go to start to think about how do we holistically think about designing very intentionally student learning experiences and kind of making that student learning experience the outcome we're looking for. So basically, if I go just simply type in hope.school, it's going to bring me to information about your new book. That's right. And if I put in Meteor, like the uh, like a comet or something of that nature, meteoreducation.com, that's your broader website. That's the, yeah, right, the broader website for our organization. And really, in all of this, learning at its core is very much a relationship and not a transaction. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that we find that, that communities, when they make that connection, that we have become a transaction, and it's no longer about the relationship with students. It's about creating a transaction with that student. That, that's where they'll find, once they have that aha moment, that they can start to, to change that. Now, I'm actually looking at the cover of your book. It's got a, mm, uh, well... Some semblance to a typical classroom, but not really. I mean, there's students in groups. They look like they're interacting. Some appear to be talking. Others are looking at a laptop together. Uh, You're claiming that this book is going to help create schools that turn disengaged kids into inspired learners. And you've given us some background, but, but what is this going to really look like? Is it going to be different in every school? You're just trying to teach some concepts, and then it's going to be malleable based on the community and the group of students who are there? It would almost, yeah, it would almost have to be considered um, a, a roadmap that helps people go through guiding principles as opposed to this is exactly what it looks like. And I'll tell you maybe why. Every community has different challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, 
socioeconomic challenges, there are challenges with the economy in different communities. And so to say there is a one-size-fits-all prescription out there for how your community is going to educate would be similar to saying there's a one-size-fits-all education system out there that will fit every student. And so one of the things that we definitely want people to focus on is where do we sort of fit on the taxonomy of schools today and how would our community ladder up? Uh, to go to, to the next level on the ladder. And so we, we deal with the taxonomy in the book that deals with everything from future-ready schools to what we call well-schooled but poorly educated schools to even what we would call left-behind schools. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are you know custodial schools or in some cases even survival schools where um, in certain urban environments, it, it, if little Johnny happens to make it back and forth to school safely, that was a good day. Wow. And so you can imagine that in each of those different communities, you would not have a similar strategy how you would help that child engage their learning experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've got to talk uh, some more about these different types of schools, some things that I think each of you who are tuning in today can relate to. Maybe your school fits one of these patterns, and some of these solutions that Bill and uh, others on his team are talking about can really make a difference right where you're at. We're talking with Bill Latham, his book, Humanizing the Education Machine. We're going to be talking more about practical things that you can do right in your community that can make a difference. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Stay tuned. Don't go away. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more.
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Dr. David DeRose back with Bill Latham. Bill, CEO of Meteor Education, and speaking to us about some transformative ideas on how education can be truly different. Maybe you're listening today from a reservation. Maybe you're looking at the school system you have there. You may be very pleased with what's happened. There have been a lot of exciting things in Indian country with a revival of native language studies and native culture in the classroom. But maybe you're still struggling with things. Maybe you're on a school board. Maybe you're a parent or a grandparent. And whether you're in an urban area, whether you're native or non-native, These issues are things that affect us all as community members, wherever we're at. Bill, you gave us a scenario, actually a number of scenarios, different types of of schools, different types of tasks. One of the schools that got my attention, or at least type of school, you talked about these left-behind schools. Tell us a little bit, again, what those are and then what uh, might happen, maybe some success stories for those left-behind schools. Well, you can imagine that in certain socioeconomic uh, scenarios or certain types of, of living scenarios that children's mind share is so taken up by what goes on around them. Maybe they are in a single-parent family. They're not sure if they're going to have dinner when they get home. They're not mm-hmm. sure if they're going to be safe walking to school. Um, and there are you know, tens of millions of children in poverty around the country. Uh, and the schools uh, that inhabit these communities are often what we would refer to as those type of survival schools or custodial schools where um, sometimes you wonder how how would anybody come out of those conditions and and then and be successful. And so one of the things that we studied were are there any programs around the country that are really successful in engaging that type of, of makeup of a child coming in and helping them, if you will, to track back into a direction that's successful. Mm-hmm. One of the first things you have to understand is that brain science tells us when our brains are are so taken up by those kinds of things around us that it can cause. Uh, differences in our cognitive development. We can can actually be cognitively much younger than we are in our age. And this becomes a real issue for children uh, who are entering now and trying to, you know, become literate and trying to do exact numeracy and develop fluency. And so one of the the schools we found in in, uh, Dallas, the Momentous Institute, began in the 20s. And today it serves about 6,000 kids and families every year. And one of the things that we found was that the focus uh, of the type of student that's coming in here these are kids who are coming out of conditions where they're likely having some type of neural impairment from either social, emotional, uh, or some type of sexual abuse, uh, or often uh, some combination of those. And uh, without intervention strategies, these are the kids that will ultimately uh, fall out of our system long before they ever see the end of high school. Mm-hmm. The strategies in these facilities look a lot more like helping the child understand a little bit more about themselves, to understand how they're feeling. Uh, then, then about teaching them to read right off the bat, because mm-hmm. there are so many things that would take up their mind share uh, otherwise. And if they don't learn to manage their emotions and their, their social awareness, uh, those things will actually uh, ultimately claim them in their life. So basically, it almost sounds like the teacher's role has transitioned from the typical person who imparts knowledge than maybe someone who comes alongside the students and is more a a mentor or a friend, or is that not a correct characterization of what's happening? 
I think it even goes beyond mentor and friend, but you're right. The relationship is so much more powerful than the, the academic benefit that can be derived from the teacher. Uh, the, this particular institute um, really teaches children, um, and what they find is that 99% of them graduate from high school, 86% go on to college, and wow. the kind of learning experience they're creating for them is something that blows away the, the, the norms of what their socioeconomic background would be. And then this institute also trains teachers, uh, about 5,000 teachers a year uh, that go through there and really helping them with a well-integrated learning framework that is designed around these ideas of social literacy and emotional literacy. In other words, I know why I feel like I'm feeling. I understand the social challenges that I have. And we obviously have to grow these kids up a little faster and help them become a lot more resilient because they will not make it otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're being successful with that type of demographic, you've got people saying, I mean, this is wonderful. They want to learn about Momentus Institute. Is this one of the schools that you feature in your book? Momentus is one of the schools we feature in the book, and it's just one of several that we highlight on this sort of idea of student engagement having so much to do with this idea of hope, how I feel about my future, how I feel about the adults around me, how much I trust them. Um, how, do, how do I feel about uh, my own uh, future in education? These are really important predictors of how engaged a child will stay and ultimately if they're a dropout risk. Mm-hmm. And as we can weigh in on those factors, we tend to find that that, that will help that child to become resilient and, and really even take ownership for their learning. And the challenge, I think, is a lot of times the idea is, well, let's just drill them more. We'll teach them reading. We'll, we'll double the number of hours we spend with them reading. We'll double the amount of uh, times tables that they learn in numeracy. We'll, we'll make sure they score well on a standardized test. And it's actually addressing the wrong problem because mm. the problem is not the child's ability to learn those things. The problem is that the child's mind share is so taken up by what's going on in their life outside of the school that they cannot possibly put enough mindshare out of it to care about their academics until we fix that root of the problem. Wow. Well, well let's go to uh, traditional schools. And, I mean, maybe we've already touched on that with the Sarasota example. Is, is that an example of more of a traditional school that just wasn't doing things right? Well, it, it, right or wrong, it was a, a school in the state of Florida. The district is considered an A-school district. Okay. So by the assessment standards, you would want your child to go there. Uh-huh. But as you walk through the school, you would find kids with their heads down on the desks, watching the clock, waiting their time out so they could go live their lives somewhere else. Hmm. And, and ultimately, we, we define that in the book as well-schooled but poorly educated. These are kids that, that are probably going to be successful academically anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not much you're going to be able to do to them that are going to knock them off their path, unlike what we were talking about maybe in the left-behind schools. But then they're coming out, and they're dropping out of college at a, at a very high rate, and then they have no soft skills or very few soft skills that are immediately transferable into organization. Mm-hmm. And so you can you can be very well-schooled in that scenario, but if, without creating experiences for the students that help them develop those soft skills, um, this is not something that's necessarily helpful to them. And so what we saw Sarasota do is to really change the lesson design and the way that the teacher and the students were interacting with one another. And they used things like authentic inquiry, asking a student a question they actually care about, and even letting the student decide what that question might need to be because it was a, a problem they were interested in solving. Mm-hmm. And they spent a lot of time with those kids teaching them to respectfully collaborate with one another. 
you'll find that kids today, if we just stick them together and say, okay, you guys work on a problem together, don't necessarily know how to talk to one another or to respectfully collaborate with one another. They're not certainly picking it up from political discourse on TV, and they're, mm. they're not maybe even picking it up at home. So where are they to learn how to respectfully collaborate with one another? And then another part of their lesson design was to have a very rigorous and complex team task that no one individual was going to be able to solve, forcing the team, in essence, to rely on the brain power of the many, the creativity of the many, the collaboration of the many, to really kind of get through the problem-based lesson. Mm-hmm. And so these are strategies that they employed, and it actually turned around those bored kids, and they were excited about the problems they were solving. They felt a real connection to them because they were authentic. And they help them develop skills that are going to be immediately transferable for them into employment scenarios. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, now, where does uh, the whole idea of trades and skills, I mean, in traditional Native communities, I mean, this was something that was very central to the educational process in the home. And, of course, there's still a need for skilled laborers. That also seems to have fallen by the wayside in many educational settings. Yeah, we, we actually, as we looked at the categorization of schools uh, above the well schools and poorly educated, we dealt with future-ready schools. Mm-hmm. And one of the subcategories there are career and technical education facilities because there's really a new generation that has emerged uh, in the last decade of these vocational and technical schools with state-of-the-art facilities that offer things in forensic science or culinary arts or film and production, robotics, computer engineering, coding, and the list goes on and on. Um, and to your point, uh, even uh, real trades, uh, what would be considered uh, historical trades maybe of, of uh, auto mechanics and welding and uh, healthcare, so that students uh, who graduate can be offered employment levels of certification as they, as they go and also, in, in a lot of cases, uh, educational credit for, for college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those programs are emerging, and it is definitely one of the trends we see in terms of future-ready schools. Okay, so we've talked about the the well-schooled but poorly educated. We've talked about the left-behind schools. We talked about this concept of future-ready. Is there any other characterizations that we need to uh, to add to the equation? I think the the very top of the food chain we find, if you will, in terms of thriving community schools, are those that are really engaged in public-private partnerships between the community. Uh, and the community's mission is really about making sure that they offer the best kinds of education. There's a story in the book where we talk about Columbus, Indiana. Uh, the Cummings Engine Plant uh, in Columbus, Indiana, uh, about 60 years ago, trying to recruit world-class engineers to come in and be a part of that community, uh, they had a failed school project. Uh, the school was delivered. It was behind schedule. It was not what the community wanted. And the question of the community leaders and the leaders of the coming uh, engine company at the time said, is how can we recruit world-class engineers and bring them out here into the cornfields of Indiana when we have a school system that is substandard or failing? Mm-hmm. And so at that point, they began a 50-year plan. And over that 50-year plan, the community really engaged not just the school system, but the architectural uh, community at large in transforming uh, the entire community. But the schools were a prominent piece of that. And it was the understanding that healthy schools and healthy communities go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's really no way around that. If my school system isn't healthy, eventually those children are going to become part of the community, and people who I would want to retain in the community are going to leave the community. And 
so the connection there uh, with Columbus, Indiana, they got it, and they, they talk a lot about the idea of social capital and building the social capital in the community so that confidence in the school systems is something that drives overall confidence in the businesses and the, and the community at large. So a lot of times we talk about this concept of social capital. We've mentioned it a couple of times in the program already. Tell us, uh, if someone's new to that term, what it, uh, it connotes to you, Bill. I think it talks about confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is how confident am I in uh, the people that have been seated leadership that are uh, asking me to participate in some way with my time and my resources in this community. We see this dramatic drop-off in the last 35 or 40 years in the confidence that people have in public education from the high 50s to the mid-20s if it, when asked the question, uh, how confident are you in public schools? Wow. That is an indicator that if you asked me for resources, you said, hey, we need to pass a bond to build a new school, or we need to have a mentorship program in our community, or we need to have businesses that come in and help us in our STEM program to bring real-world problems in that our kids can solve. The lower that social capital bank account is, if you will, with your community, the lower participation rate you can expect. Because people don't want to waste their time and they don't want to waste their resources. Mm-hmm. They'd rather apply it somewhere else where the social capital is higher. So it, in, in essence, it's a bank account of, of belief in the confidence of the institutions uh, that are asking them for their assistance or really need them for their assistance to be successful. These are such important topics. Bill Latham, he is the CEO of Meteor Education. He is also one of the co-authors of the book, Humanizing the Education Machine. Subtitle of the book, How to Create Schools that Turn Disengaged Kids into Inspired Learners. If you're looking to tap into more of the wisdom of Bill Latham and his team, we'll give you that contact information when we come back. We've got a final segment. Stay tuned for more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, 
Doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Dr. David DeRose in the home stretch of today's edition of American Indian Living, our final segment with Bill Latham. Bill is the CEO of Meteor Education. He is also the co-author of a book that is really challenging us all to re-examine what our presuppositions about education are. The book is called Humanizing the Education Machine. Bill, as we've been talking Somewhere in the back of my mind, not too far back, is my own daughter. She's uh, finishing up her training in college. She's been studying to be an elementary education teacher, elementary school teacher. She's been in the classroom. She's done some work as a a teacher's aide over a couple of, of seasons and still is, you know, got that idealism of youth. But the interesting disconnect, as as I talk with her, is there's a lot of, it seems like, discontent among teachers, a lot of openings, uh, more so than you would expect with a, a field that seems to draw such visionaries. And you mentioned a concept that is resonating with me as a physician, and that is wellness. You said you're and your team are interested in wellness, not just for the students, but for the teachers. Tell us a little bit more about this. Well, uh, first, I'd start with, you know, how how well are the teachers in our country, uh, and, and and what is their well-being or wellness level like? And so, uh, one study from Gallup shows that the disengagement rate among teachers is seventy percent, uh, with about fifty to fifty-five percent reporting that they're just not engaged, mm. and about uh, twelve to thirteen percent reporting that they are actively disengaged, uh, which is obviously a much uh, greater level of disengagement, and, and only about thirty percent reporting that they're actually engaged in their work. Mm-hmm. They did a study related to the number of days that a, that a teacher will miss, relatively speaking, to how they report on their engagement. And they found that there are 2.3 million more workdays missed by those that are not engaged or actively disengaged nationally than those that report being engaged. Wow. That's 2.3 million instructional days uh, that substitutes are called in where kids aren't getting instruction from the teacher that they're used to. And, and let's, be, let's be honest, the day that a substitute comes in is usually not an instructional day. And so we have to ask the question, if the people that we're looking to really help us at a classroom level make these kinds of changes, asking authentic questions, drive student collaboration, integrate new technologies, create a much more collaborative environment, if those are the people we're asking to do these things and they are checked out in large measure because of uh, regulations and standardized testing and, and a litany of things they never signed up for, do we need to start to focus as a primary strategy on fixing that problem before we try to fix all the rest of the leaks around the boat. Mm-hmm. No, it's a very, very interesting question because if you don't have the people to uh, captain the ship, if you will, you're not going anywhere, right? I think it's an inescapable fact, too, that the worldview of the teacher insofar as he or she is effective 
will gradually make its way to the worldview of the pupil. Mm. Nobody teaches out of a philosophical vacuum, and nobody learns out of a philosophical vacuum. And so if I have a disengaged teacher, that's something I'm likely to catch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, if 70% of the teachers I encounter in my academic career are going to fall in that category, then you wonder that our children are reporting disengagement by the time they're in 12th grade at about an 80% rate. So what's the solution? How do you focus on the wellness of the teachers? How do you still hold up all these new models and still nurture the teachers and keep them engaged? Well, imagine teachers are used to having a lot of things done to them. Here's this year's teaching method, no child left behind, common core, whatever the governor or lieutenant governor happened to write on the napkin this year. And after four years of teaching, we hear that Mrs. Smith stepped and joined the circus. Um, This is not a good plight where we're constantly coming back and enacting things on teachers. Hmm. Oftentimes, who knows best how little Johnny learns? Interesting. Who's right there on a regular basis? And so the movement that we see already going on, and this has been going on for a decade, of local decision-making in schools, about bringing the teacher back into the conversation about how do we best educate in our community and listening intently about what these people who interact with our children regularly are saying about how do we do this better, instead of constantly enacting what are bureaucratic standards and new testing standards and high-stakes testing, and we've got to make sure those people are doing their job, we really need to step back and start to ask questions about how do we need to engage the kids in our community and let our teachers begin to help us guide those lesson frameworks. They take ownership then. Mm-hmm. And so we saw several programs in, in, in our studies uh, that had done that, and their teachers were so positively engaged. They used terms like, we, we've never been more excited about being a teacher. I love coming here. I could never go back and teach the way I used to teach. This is what transformative education looks like, not just for the student. But the way you really know you've gotten there is when the teachers are talking like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's exciting. I mean, what, what you're talking about is, uh, is inspiring me because I think all of us have seen examples of things that didn't work, and I think you're helping us catch some glimpses of things that do, even if we haven't seen it in reality. So talk now to someone, Bill, who may be on a tribal council level. They're hearing what we're talking about. They're saying, well, what can I do? I'm in a position of leadership. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're uh, a grandparent who's just interested in the education of their their kids and their grandkids. What can we do that can help us all move in this direction? I think it's always important to take an inventory of where you're at to start with. Um, where, where would we consider ourselves on this ladder of a humanized school? Are we in a survival school mode? Are, are we well-schooled, poorly educated? Are we really talking about being a future-ready school? Um, where are we on that ladder? That's an important first step. I think a second thing is we're going to have to start with a very clear vision of what successful teaching and learning is going to look like in our learning community, and it can't come from the top down. It should be facilitated out from the instructional staff and from those in the specific learning communities that are actually delivering the instruction. Once you kind of have those frameworks in place, you can begin to do things like wrap technology or an environment or a a particular curriculum around it. But without that kind of core instructional belief and it being bought into on a large scale, a lot of times people drift from, if you will, miracle pill to miracle pill. Well, this year we'll try the technology, and next year we'll try this miracle curriculum, and next year we're going to switch out all of our old desks for these taco chip-shaped uh, desks. And it's sort of like a pinball 
game where we bounce from strategy to strategy to strategy instead of creating a cogent, de-siloed strategy that deals with both our, our methods, our tools and technology and our environments kind of simultaneously with one another. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, this is definitely something I know so many people are inspired by, just the thought of transforming schools, of giving our kids greater hope, uh, greater engagement. For a tribal council, let's speak to that example that I threw out, is a good place to start? I mean, I know, I know you're biased. Maybe you're not the one to ask this question of, but is reading the book, Humanizing the Education Machine, is that a reasonable place to start? I think if not humanizing the education machine, then, then other, um, other things that get them out of the traditional thought processes of let's just drill more, let's have longer school days, let's bring more rigor, let's bring more testing standards into the mix. Because surely if we drill these ch- children more, uh, we'll get what we want out of them. I think just a basic understanding, whether you read the book or not, about education is a relationship that learning is very much a relational issue mm. as opposed to a transaction and that it is a proxy for good citizenship and not an end into itself. As soon as education becomes an end into itself, then it's okay to cheat to succeed. But if it's mm. a proxy for good citizenship and, and being a good member uh, of the group, um, all of a sudden it has a different value and the, the things that we learn in it and not necessarily the outcomes we produce from it that are so important to us. Our book certainly touches on that, but we are not alone in that conversation. But it is a philosophical war of ideas at this point between greater standards, more testing, more um, of the same, and just at greater and greater degrees, or it's just not working. We have to envision a world of what if. What if the machine were to disappear and we had to start over? Mm. And that's really what the heart of the book is. Bill, one more time, how does someone get a copy of the book? Uh, you can go to hope.school, the website, and from there, uh, since there are several outlets, Amazon certainly has the book available. I'd encourage you to pick up a copy there for sure. Okay, and then Meteor Education, if we want more information about what you and your team do, how do we do that? www.meteoreducation.com. Uh, we talk about connecting these dots for people, and that's one of the things that we help communities do. Well, Bill, our time has just about uh, slipped away from us. You've given us some great material to think about, hopefully some things to motivate us, some things that will make a difference in our communities. As we wind up, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with my listeners? Yeah, I'd say the idea of learning, being an elite province of experts, and that we leave that to somebody else to figure out how to innovate is really a a concept we need to reject. Stepping in and understanding that uh, our children's future and, and our community's future is uh, inextricably tied to this education they're receiving, the experiences that they're receiving. That's how we uh, we have to re-engage that process and, and, and not let that be disconnected. We go to work, our children go to school, and somehow our community is going to work out. Mm. Listen, Bill, thank you so much for your insights. Bill Latham, CEO of Meteor Education. Hopefully today's show has helped you catch a new vision for what your schools can be like, Hopefully today's show, as always, is something that makes a difference, not just for you, but for your health and the health of our communities. For all of us at American Indian Living, as always, I'm Dr. DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.